Chapter 10 naturally flows from the previous chapter, chapter 9, and the incident that is contained therein. In chapter 9, you may recall, we saw the healing of a blind man. The man is questioned by the Pharisees, particularly concerning the person of Jesus. And this man does not give the answers that they wanted, or maybe they were expecting. In so doing, he has identified himself with Christ. For the man is persecuted for his faith. He makes the good confession, and he is kicked out of the synagogue for it. Later, Christ's good confession would lead to his suffering and to his death. The Pharisees show themselves to be delinquent shepherds of the flock. The poor man was blind from birth. He is made to see according to the sovereign grace of God in Jesus Christ. But instead of rejoicing with this man, the shepherds of Israel interrogate him, castigate him. They eventually excommunicate him. But this outcast is a precious sheep in Christ's eyes. Christ came to redeem and to save outcasts such as he. For he hears the voice of Jesus, and in hearing the voice of Jesus, he follows him. And now, in chapter 10, Jesus will put himself in stark contrast to the Pharisees. We will note this contrast by giving attention to three matters. First, we'll give our attention to Jesus who reveals himself as the true door and shepherd. Second, Jesus reveals himself as the true redeemer of his sheep. And third, Jesus reveals himself as the true Son of God. So first of all, let's talk about how Jesus reveals himself as the true door and true shepherd. Verses 1 through 18 contain for us a series of mixed metaphors. Jesus is at liberty, of course, to switch metaphors, and he does so at will, which is nothing new here, by the way. He uses metaphor and parabolic language to communicate something about who he is and what it is that he has come to do, what is called in verse 6, figures of speech. He uses, in other words, earthly language to communicate something of heavenly realities. Here, the immediate metaphor is pastoral in nature. Jesus speaks about a sheepfold, and he speaks of the way in which one gets into the sheepfold. He tells us that the way into the sheepfold comes by way of a door. Sheepfolds were typically constructed of four walls and one door, one way in, one way out. The walls were there not only to keep the sheep in, but the walls were also there to keep people out, namely predators, whether animals or humans. So there is one legitimate way into the pen or the fold and one legitimate way out. That makes identifying the bad guy or the unwanted intruder quite easy. If he comes in through the door, then he is the shepherd. He's legitimate. But if he climbs over the wall, then we know he's not legitimate. He's a thief, whether 
of an animal kind or a human kind. But when the doorkeeper lets the shepherd in, the shepherd calls the sheep to lead them out into the pasture to feed and to water. And immediately the sheep hear his voice as he calls them, having entered in through the door. They hear his voice because they recognize it. It's a familiar voice. It's a friendly voice. It is the voice of an advocate, of one who cares. And so they follow him. It is the voice of a trusted shepherd, not the voice of a robber. The voice that repels the sheep is the voice of a thief, and it causes them to run away, verse 5. It is the voice that sounds somehow wrong. It sounds off. It's not quite right. And the sheep pick that up. But the voice of the shepherd comes with a trusted tone. It sounds safe. The sheep pick that up. They recognize it, and they follow it. But it should not be missed, verse 3, that this shepherd calls his own sheep by name. There are two things of note here. First, these are his own sheep. They are the sheep that are his. He possesses them. And only those sheep, those sheep and only those sheep, but all of those sheep, they belong to him. He doesn't own all the sheep in the world. He only owns the sheep that he has purchased. Secondly, he knows these sheep by name. That is to say, he knows them individually. He knows them personally. They are not sort of blank faces or blank names or are holding spots for this person or that particular type of person. But he knows them personally, really, truly, intimately. But now in verse 7, he explains the parable he has just given. He explains how the door is a metaphor of himself. The true way, the true door into the sheepfold comes through Jesus. Those who enter any other way enter illegitimately, and they are a thief. Now, from a redemptive historical perspective, we should note that the metaphor of sheep was often used to describe God's people, Israel, throughout the Old Testament. And shepherds was, used, was a term that was used to describe Israel's leaders and their elders in particular. And the focus of Jesus' explanation is definitely redemptive historical. As we can note by the time marker in this passage, where he says, All who came before me. You see, Jesus is making a redemptive historical comparison between Israel's past leaders and himself. Of course, the not so subtle inference is that the problem of Israel's elders in the past is a problem that hasn't remained in the past, but has been moved forward into the present, even in Jesus' own day. And here we are reminded of Ezekiel 34. In Ezekiel 34, God condemns the elders of Israel for being false shepherds. Nevertheless, both Jesus here and Ezekiel back then are clear about the fact that God still had sheep 
for him to preserve. Verse 8, but the sheep did not listen to them. The true sheep who enter into the fold through the true shepherd are able to discern the difference between these false shepherds, the false elders of Israel on the one hand, and the true shepherd, that is to say God himself on the other. The promise of Jesus is clear. He, Jesus, and he alone is the good shepherd, verse 11. And as such, he proves himself, shows himself to be the good shepherd because he lays down his life for the sheep, unlike the false elders and shepherds of Israel who devour the sheep. Here, once again, we have a redemptive historical claim that is being made by Jesus. In the background is the identity of the great shepherd. It is the Lord who leads his flock through Moses and Aaron, Psalm 7720. It is the Lord who is David's shepherd, Psalm 23.1. And Ezekiel speaks of the day when the Lord himself will shepherd his flock. Consider with me verse 11 of Ezekiel 34. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep, that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness, and I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture." And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their gazing, grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. This brings in stark contrast Jesus and the leaders of Israel. But the contrast is not just between Jesus and the past leaders in the Old Covenant, but also between Jesus and the Pharisees of his day. They have already shown themselves to be false shepherds, Shepherds who do not lay down their lives for the sheep, but rather, as we saw previously in chapter 9, they devour a blind man, excommunicating him simply because he saw who Jesus was and testified to him. And rather than leading the sheep to the Messiah, laying down their lives in order to do so, instead they plot to take the life of the Messiah himself. But the shepherding that is in view here is not that of a guide, though Jesus is that, and it is not that of a protector or a provider, though Jesus is those things as well. Rather, the the view here of a shepherd is that of a Savior. Jesus, notice here, as the true shepherd, as the good shepherd, as the great shepherd, is the redeemer of his sheep. 
This is hinted at at verse 9 where he says this, If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Also, verse 10, Jesus came to give his sheep life. The way in which he will give sheep or give life to his sheep is by laying down his life. You see that in verse 11 and in verse 15. But also, not just in laying down his life, but also in taking it up again, verses 17 and 18. But this is at once made explicit in verses 22 to 30. Here, the Jews once again confront Jesus. And they demand that Jesus tell them plainly that he is the Christ. Of course, Jesus has spoken plainly, both in word and deed. Even his works bear witness to who he is. And yes, Jesus has indeed spoken in figures of speech, but the parabolic teachings of Jesus are perfectly clear for anyone who has the eyes to see or the ears to hear. It is not as if Jesus has been coy. Everything Jesus has said, everything that Jesus has done is screaming, I am the Christ. Everything reveals that he is the fulfillment of all the types and shadows of the old covenant, that he is the living water, the bread of life, that he is the light of the world, that he is the door and the good shepherd. Anyone with ears to hear or eyes to see can see and hear that he is the Messiah. So the problem hasn't been with Jesus' mode of communication. The problem is, as he says in verse 26, you are not among my sheep. Contrary to the unbelieving Jews, the sheep for whom Jesus lays down his life, hear his voice and follow him, verse 27. Now, lest there be any confusion about the nature of the salvation that Jesus brings, he is very clear in verses 28 through 30. He now turns his attention to his sheep and the topic of their salvation. Remember, his role as the great shepherd is not that of a a, a social justice warrior. He is not that of a cultural transformer, not that of a mere guide or a provider of earthly and physical temporal things, although Jesus does give those things and are concerned for those things. But notice here, that the salvation that Jesus comes to accomplish entails the laying down of his life and taking it back up again that results in eternal life. So that the gift of salvation that he comes to bring is the gift of eternal life. It is eternal salvation that is in view, not merely the prolonging of earthly existence or the improvement of earthly existence, but it is to bring his sheep into their heavenly home, not just for a time, but for all of eternity. The purpose, the goal of the laying down of his life and taking it back up again is the redemption and the salvation of his sheep such that the gift of eternal life is, you'll notice here, irrevocable. Notice what he says here. He says here that they will never perish. The perishing here brings into view eschatological death. He's not saying they will never physically die or never see the grave. But what he is saying here is that ultimate death, death in the most ultimate final eschatological sense will not be theirs. 
This death is the death which threatened Adam upon condition of his breaking the covenant of works. God says, on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Another way to translate that is, you shall die in dying, or you will die, die. In other words, what is in view here is not merely just physical death, but it is complete and total death, physical and spiritual. This means that the presupposition here is that the sheep that Jesus comes to save are by nature sinners. Their default position is that of those who will perish under their sin if they are not redeemed. They will perish unless somebody comes along and lays down their life for the sheep. And this is exactly what Jesus does as the Good Shepherd. In so doing, He delivers them from eschatological death. He gives them instead eschatological life, the life that Adam would have and should have secured by virtue of his perfect obedience to the covenant of works. And now, his sheep, who follow him and hear his voice, in living, they will live. They will now surely live, for the curse that is due sin is now reversed for the sheep of the Good Shepherd. And what is more, as our Savior goes on to say, no one will be able to snatch them out of His hand. You see, Jesus being the Good Shepherd, Jesus being the Great Shepherd, has a strong grip on His sheep. He will persevere them unto the end. For he who began a good work in them will bring it to its completion, Philippians 1.6. For who can separate these sheep from the love of Christ, Romans 8.35? In fact, nothing. Nothing, whether in this life or in the life to come, can separate his sheep from the love of God that is found in the Good Shepherd, Jesus Christ. We might note that the extent of the Ordo Salutis that the entire Ordo Salutis is contained here. The sheep given to the Son by the Father is a bestowal, a giving of the sheep by name, by the Father to the Son before time and creation. It is the kind of giving of the Father to the Son of these sheep by particular and specific names that precedes time. Now, in Reformed dogma, this is often referred to as the Pactum Salutis, that is to say the primordial agreement between the Father and the Son that certain sheep, call them the elect, will be given to the Son so that the Son would, when He comes in time, in the Incarnation, lay down His life and take it back up again for their redemption. This means that those for whom the Son lays down His life is for the sheep and only the sheep. The saving activity of Christ then is limited. It is limited for and to the sheep. It is limited in scope to only those that the Father has given Him before the foundations of the earth. But we also have the doctrine of effectual calling in here too. 
the sheep and only the sheep for whom Christ has laid down his life will be able to hear, will be able to hear the call of Christ in the gospel, be able to hear, to recognize the voice of their good shepherd and respond by following him. It is they, they only, who can and do believe on Christ and are given the grace of eternal life and are made by God's grace to persevere unto the end. Next, let's talk about Jesus, the true Son of God. Now, it is the statement of Jesus that he and the Father are one that really raises the ire of the Jews. As a result, they pick up stones in order to stone him, verse 31. But Jesus challenges them. For which of my good works are you stoning me? The Jews respond that it's not for a good work that they're going to stone him, but because of Jesus' act of blasphemy, verse 33. Jesus is making himself God, despite the fact, as they think, he is only a man. It's at this point that Jesus' defense takes an unexpected turn. Jesus quotes, as he says here, from your law, that is to say the law of the Jews, particularly the law of the Pharisees. And then he goes on and he quotes from the scriptures and he says, I said you are gods. Now, this is actually a quote from Psalm 82, 6, which means that the law, as Jesus here uses that language, is not restricted to commands or even to the Pentateuch. But here we can see that the word law can refer more generally to the entirety of Scripture. Particularly here, he has in view the Psalms, Psalm 82, verse 6. Now, I want to read for you Psalm 82, 6 in context. So, I'm going to read verse 6 and verse 7. This is what it says here. I said you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Now, in context, this psalm, Psalm 82, is a condemnation of the leaders of Israel. They are, as it is described here in the psalm, unjust judges who favor the wicked, as we see in Psalm 82, verse 2. They lack knowledge and understanding, verse 5. But it's in that context that God declares these judges to be gods. They are, in fact, sons of God, sons of the Most High, as the psalmist describes them. But they are not, we ought not to think for a moment, that the psalmist is saying that they are the one true and living God. They are mere mortal creatures. For one day, these judges although they are called gods by God, will die. They will fall like any other leader. And so Jesus goes on to apply this passage to the situation, now moving back to John 10, verses 35 to 36. Follow with me carefully the logic of the way in which our Lord expounds this. Now, whenever you see an if statement or the the word if starting a sentence as you see in verse 35 you'll automatically look for a then 
If X is the case, then Y must necessarily follow. So this is the logic of Jesus. So if God Himself calls these wicked judges gods, then why do you condemn me, the one sent by the Father, for saying that I am the Son of God? In other words, if God Himself can call wicked men gods, how much more me, Jesus, the consecrated one who is sent into the world, refer to Himself as the Son of God? We have here a logic that moves from the lesser to the greater. Now, the question arises, why does God call these men gods? First, there is the fact of man being God's image-bearer. But bearing the image of God does not make one identical with God. And at no point does Psalm 82 conceive of man that way. In fact, the whole idea of image assumes that there is a difference between the original and the copy. Images are copies of the original. They are not the same thing. So think of a picture. When you look at a picture, you see a person. Now you see a picture of that person, but you don't see the person themselves. So when you show that picture to someone, you say something like, oh, look, this is my daughter. But you're not speaking literally here. You're not saying this picture is my daughter. You're saying this is a picture of my daughter. And we dare not confuse the two as if the picture were your daughter. And in that way, man, as he images God, is like God. So like God is man, that language which is proper only to God is sometimes used for man in a non-literal way. For man does not have, nor does he share in a divine nature. That's not what Psalm 82, 6 is saying. And if that is the case for man in general, it is all the more the case for others who enjoy exalted positions. For instance, the angelic hosts are referred to as sons of God. Job 1, 6, 2, 1, 38, 7, and possibly Genesis chapter 6, verses 2 and 4. But it's, it's most appropriate that human rulers would be called gods or sons of God, not because they are of a divine nature, not at all, nor because somehow they they share or exalted or lifted up in a process of divinization or theosis into the very substance or nature of God itself, not at all, but rather because of their exalted positions as rulers, they are appropriately called gods or sons of God. Human rulers are legitimate authority that God puts in place. They serve as under-kings under the divine king himself. Human kings are often referred to as vice-regents or vice-gerents. They are images and likenesses of God. So they are called gods by virtue of their similarity to God, both as being image-bearers, but what is more, by being rulers over the earth. But they are not called gods because somehow, some way, they have become equal in power, authority, or nature with God. They are not. But this truly sets up the point that Jesus here is making, which really is this. If God can call wicked, human-created rulers sons of God, how much more is it appropriate that the creator of those rulers, namely Jesus, The Creator of all things, namely Jesus, 
even him who is the eternal divine son of God, namely Jesus, how much more appropriate is that he himself take that title? That is because this son of God, Jesus, was in the beginning. He was with God because he is God. He is the original, eternal son of God, of which all other sons of God whether in the angelic host or within the kingly rulers of the earth, are but replicas and copies. Finally, we can see the heavenly and eschatological orientation of John's theology here. The Son of God is the true bridegroom, of whom all human bridegrooms are but an earthly picture. He is the true Lamb of God to whom all ceremonial lambs are but pointers. He is the heavenly bread and true water and light, of whom all created bread, water, and light are but earthly, physical, created manifestations. John's theology, then, is redemptive historical, not Platonic. The relationship between the original and the copies is not that of a relationship between ideas and forms as you find it in Platonic philosophy. The earthly and heavenly is not the forms and ideas respectively. Rather, the earthly is a revelation of the heavenly. The earthly is a revelation of the glory dwelling of God. And the earthly includes all that comes before the Lagos is incarnate. The earthly, therefore, is redemptive historically prior, and as such serves as a foreshadow and an anticipation of the coming heavenly reality. And the Son of God from heaven is the eschatological fulfillment of all of those images that have come before him. The earthly comes first, and only then the heavenly and the man from heaven. He comes second. He comes last. He is the last and second Adam. He is the final one. He is the eschatological fulfillment of all of those images that have come before him. Now, in part two of this course, we will examine, Lord willing, chapters 11 through 21. And there we will see John develop his theology as he moves his account forward towards Jerusalem and eventually to the passion and resurrection of our Lord. And there we will see a king and a kingdom of a higher order made revealed to us. A kingdom and a king that, as we will see, though he suffers, he is victorious not just despite the fact of his death as a king upon the cross, but he will show and he will manifest himself. He will reveal himself as a victorious king over a victorious kingdom precisely because of his suffering on the cross. 